Bible reading today comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put, a ba- put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. It's from the ESV version. Thanks, Darren. In that passage, the Lord Jesus is, in the Sermon on the Mount, is um, talking to his followers, his disciples. And there are many outlines for the Sermon on the Mount, but here is a nice simple one. Um, The first, um, there are three paragraphs. The first paragraph is chapter 5, verses about 3 to 9, where the Lord Jesus talks about character. That if you're a follower of his, a disciple of the Lord Jesus, then these are the qualities, the attributes that you are to be demonstrating, your attitudes and uh, in your behaviours, but primarily attitudes. It's pure heart, about passion for righteousness, about being merciful to others, being humble, being meek, um, and so on. And then second paragraph is, having spoken about character, he then talks about conflict, verses 10 to 12, where there will be people who will oppose you, they'll persecute you, they'll say evil things about you. I'll even hate you and, you know, arrest you, kill you and and so on. And then from 5.13, the passage where Darren read to us from, till the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, the Lord Jesus talks about conduct. So character, conflict and conduct. How we as his followers are to behave in the world. And he certainly talks about the temptations of compromise, but also of charlatans who will come in who will pretend to be followers of him and you know you'll know them by you'll know a tree by their fruits there'll be true and false prophets there's and so on um, there's a true way uh, a broad way and a narrow way there is built on the rock and built on the sand there is this contrast about what's going on it's in verses 13 to 16 in this passage is really the beginning of that third focus about this is how we are to behave in the world as followers of the Lord Jesus And that's the passage we've selected this morning because we are focusing as a church in this term and particularly in this month or so upon uh, connecting with God through prayer, connecting with one another in life groups and in this month connecting with others, people who don't know Jesus yet, people on the outside of the kingdom, evangelism, local mission, um, us being witnesses and testifying to the truth of him and to the truth of the gospel. So this passage has something to say to us which is relevant to that theme. I'm going to pray and ask God that he might assist me and that he might speak to all of us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can be together. We thank you again for your Son who died for us, for your Spirit who convicted and who dwells in us, for the gift of your Word that you've given us to guide us and for the gift of one another to encourage and to hold us to account. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you might use all avenues, 
all of these avenues, that the Lord Jesus might be our focus and that he might be honoured, that your spirit might speak to us through your word and that indeed that you might even speak to us through one another and shape us as your body to be more effective for you, that the Lord Jesus might be not only proclaimed but might be honoured in our lives, in our church and in this world. We pray these things in his wonderful name. And everyone said... So Matthew 5, 13 to 16 is our mandate on how we are to live as followers of the Lord Jesus. And he uses two metaphors, the metaphor of salt and the metaphor of light. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And those two metaphors indicate how we are to be an influence for good as we follow Jesus in this world. And one is a negative um, dimension to our behaviour, one is a positive if I can express it like that, dimension to how we are to conduct ourselves. Certainly this is in the context, the Lord Jesus doesn't pull any punches, where the world says, you need to stand up for yourself, you need to assert yourself, you need to, if they push, then push back, you need to, you know, man up, toughen up and move on. That's the world philosophy. The Lord Jesus doesn't think like that. He says what we need to do, talking about character, is that we need to focus on having a heart which is, Uh, keen to know and love and serve God. We are to be humble, to be merciful, to be peacemakers, not conflict makers, to be passionate for righteousness, to have purity of heart, the attributes of the Beatitudes. In fact, that's Jesus saying, you want to be happy? This is how to be happy. As a pastor, and the other pastors here will certainly have had this experience, I'm sure, that often when a person gets off track, a believer or just a person who's not necessarily a believer, they, they get off track and they start doing silly things. You know, they might be married and they're going to leave their wife of so many years and they want to go off and have an affair or they want to go off with somebody who's younger. Invariably, their justification is, don't I have the right to be happy? That's their, often, their justification for it. I'm not happy here, but I, I, I have the right to be happy. Well, Jesus is telling us, you want to be happy? Follow the Beatitudes, become that sort of person and you will know happiness beyond your bounds. And I can imagine the disciples when Jesus is teaching them, I can imagine them responding like maybe even you will at certain points of, but hang on Lord Jesus, if we're going to be meek and humble and mild and peaceful, we're going to get trodden on, we're going to get run over, we're going to be overwhelmed by the rising tide of evil in this world. In fact, we are a minority and we're always going to be a minority. And you even say there at the end that we're going to be persecuted. The people are going to hate us and spread all sorts of lies about us. The Lord Jesus never pulls any punches and I can full well imagine his response being when the world does that, when they hate you and when they tell lies about you, you respond by loving them and speaking the truth. You are to be salt and light. In fact, he says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You will have an influence. It may not be pleasant all the time, but you will have an influence. Now, there is a pattern to note in these two metaphors. The pattern is this. Jesus makes a statement, then he gives a condition, then there is a warning. The statement, you are the salt of the earth. The condition, salt must retain its saltiness. The warning, otherwise it becomes useless and it's thrown out. Only good to be trodden underfoot by people. Or the statement with light, You are the light of the world, the condition, light has to be allowed to shine. The warning, that does absolutely no good if the light is concealed. There's a statement, a condition, 
and a warning. The basic truth behind these two metaphors in Jesus' mind and thinking is that there are two categories of people. It's all the way through the New Testament and it's especially all the way through uh, this Sermon on the Mount. That there are two categories. There are people who are in the world and there are people who are in Christ. There are people who are in the kingdom of darkness and people who are in the kingdom of God. There are people who are followers of Jesus and there are people who are not followers of Jesus. There are people who are the salt of the earth. They're the light of the world. And there is a distinction between salt, light and the world and the earth, the world of people. And it's important to note that because not all people in the world belong in the kingdom of Jesus. Not all people are salt and light. Not all people are followers of him. You have to acknowledge Jesus to be Lord. You have to change your mind about sin and ask for his forgiveness. You have to invite him um, to forgive you, to save you, and to call upon him for that. And he is always faithful to that cry. So we're talking to people who have actually done that. And note also, the metaphor implies that the world has certain characteristics about it. Being, when he talks about salt, the implication is that salt has a tendency, uh, the, the earth, the world of people, has a tendency to deteriorate. They can't stop themselves from this decline. There is a tendency to become worse. And so God has acted in several ways that we'll talk about, but through his people, by being salt to slow that process of corruption and decay down. Well, the world is a dark place. It has no light of its own. Not only has a tendency to deteriorate, it has this darkness which envelops it. And God has placed his people, the church, in the world, left it here, with his double purpose in mind, to hinder the spread of corruption and to dispel the darkness, our dual mission. So enough about both of those together. Let me focus firstly upon the salt of the earth and take a few minutes to talk that through. What does this metaphor mean? You are the salt of the earth. Now commentators are very creative and sometimes they can take a metaphor and their imagination runs wild with them and they come up with all sorts of very insightful and very creative understandings of this metaphor, the salt of the earth. And you've probably read or heard about some of them. What does he mean when you are the salt of the earth? What's salt like? Oh, well, one commenter said, it's white. And so Jesus is saying that we have to be white. That means we have to be pure. It means we have to be holy. Now, there's truth in that. We do need to be that. But I don't think that's what Jesus means when he says salt. Um, he goes on to say, if salt loses its saltiness... How can it be made salty again? He's got something to do with the way that it tastes or the way that it acts. So the metaphor has to be parallel to that. Back in Job chapter 6 and verse 6, Job even says, <clears throat> I think it's Job speaking, who says, can you eat food, bland food, without adding salt to it? And the answer is, eh, no, you need to add a little bit of salt. All good chefs know that. You add a little bit of salt to your meal, don't you? Don't you? Yeah, we don't. For years, we haven't, well, very rarely add salt because I've got blood pressure and salt's not good for me and there's enough salt in everything anyway. Anyway, get off the cooking thing. Job 6 verse 6, so does Jesus mean that? that you're the salt of the earth means you've got to add sort of like flavour and, flavor and spice to life that you, you help um, um, invigorate the life, the community around you. Well, maybe, I doubt it, but 
maybe that's a legitimate interpretation. Um, and then if salt loses its saltiness, then you're not adding to uh, the flavour of the community around you, in fact becoming a little bit insipid and tasteless and you're not good for anything but to be thrown away. Jesus certainly did that. Jesus added to the community in which he lived his life. He was certainly holy because he was without sin. And yet somehow the Lord Jesus had this remarkable ability to be able to associate with and be attracted to the people who were on the fringe of society, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the down and out, the people who were struggling to follow God and keep the commandments, people who had been rejected by the religious establishment, but they liked Jesus. And they attracted him. They invited him to their parties and to their weddings. In fact, the religious elite who rejected them rejected Jesus. They even accused him of being, what, a glutton, like food, and a wine-bibber, a drunkard liked his drink that's what they accused him of did the lord jesus ever get drunk no did he ever eat to excess not that we know of never sinned so it's therefore by definition no he never did and yet he was related to these people he could hang out with them still be the holy spotless son of god and tax collectors and prostitutes were not offended by him but were they liked having him around that's what we're supposed to be like we're supposed to be party animals. Well, not quite. But maybe that's what this means. I think it's got another and a better and a stronger parallel that the Lord Jesus, when he says, you are the salt of the earth, is speaking in a world before there was refrigeration. And salt was used not only on the table, but it was also used in their household. And farmers and fishermen would understand this very readily because once an animal was slain, then the only way to preserve it was to rub salt into it. The salt became like a preservative. It um, fought against the spread of corruption, of decomposition, of things going off. It helped preserve it. Um, fish would be wrapped and stored in you know, stacks of um, salt and taken off to market and, and, and so on. The world that Jesus lived in was very familiar with that reality, either rubbed it in or soaked it in a salty solution or something. So in the same way, this is what I think Jesus, this metaphor means, you are the salt of the earth. God has placed you in various contexts for you to be a hindrance to the spread of sin and corruption, to be an influence for good by preventing and hindering, opposing if you like, the development of the bad. Now, God has certainly placed other restraints in our community. Theologically, through his common grace, he has placed in the world the government, the state, he's placed the family, and he's also placed the church, and that's the one Jesus is talking about. And through the government, through the development of laws and the enforcement of laws and through our school system and so on, the, uh, God seeks to work to oppose this natural tendency of selfishness that prevent the decline into anarchy, which is inevitable because of sin. And the family, which is both marriage and parenting, where the next generation is to be discipled, to be taught, to be trained in the right way to go. God uses the government and God uses the family to preserve society. And God also, here, uses his people, his regenerate, his righteous people, the ones he has redeemed. And he expects us to be a moral disinfectant, if you like, in the context where he has placed us, in some of those contexts where morals are changing and not for the better, where morals are declining, which is never good, or maybe even in some contexts where morals 
hardly exist at all. And he places us in those contexts to be an influence for good and for him. Read an article and a, paragraph, a book, a um, couple of things that both spoke about this week. Both spoke about how many people in our major cities have no contact with a church or with a Christian. Now you think about the number of people you know and, and both through family, through work, through school, through uni, through uh, neighbourhood and hobbies and sporting activities and that, and you've got a vast influence of people around you, your oikos, your network of relationships. They did a survey in Melbourne and some rather extensive survey. They found that out of a population of about 4 million in Melbourne, about 1.5 million people would indicate that they had some relationship with some contact with someone who either went to church or that they knew was a Christian. 1.5 million. That means there are 2.5 million people in Melbourne who say they have no contact with church and no contact with anybody that they know is a Christian. 2.5 million. That's a lot. I wonder what it's like in Brisbane. That's just been starting me thinking. I wonder how many people there are around us that are not in any network that we have. And it raises the ante in my thinking about we not only need to saturate our network of relationships with the gospel, but we need to be salt and light in order to do that. But we also need to strategize about how do we go outside that. It's not just us doing it in our own strength. We have to prayerfully think about and strategize, Lord, how do we reach people with whom we have no contact? How do we do that as a church effectively? And I think that's a challenge that we need to explore how do we increase our influence would to be salt in the earth in our relationships but this effectiveness that God has given us as his people and you've probably had this example you know you're in a relationship with people and if they're not believers they don't follow Jesus and they know you do then their language changes they don't drop the Jesus word as a swear word or they don't blaspheme using God's name in vain or they don't swear as much or they don't tell dirty jokes because of you had that experience or you know they'll apologize because they'll get halfway into it and then they'll suddenly realize they've hurt or offended you or they think they have and and they'll apologize to you well that's you being salt you being an influence and likewise there'll be people on the other side who are hard-hearted who will deliberately go out of their way to drop Jesus's name to swear or to blaspheme or to tell a bad joke just to see how you'll react had that experience same thing that's you being salt and being an influence um, and God wanting to use you now strictly speaking Jesus says it's conditional our effectiveness in our relationships is conditional it can be lost if salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again well it can't it's no longer good for anything except throw it out and use it as road dust use it as a footpath let people walk on it that's all it's good for now those of you who are chemically minded will probably already know and be puzzled by how could Jesus make a chemical mistake like that and the others of you are going what salt can't lose its saltiness sodium chloride is always sodium chloride as best I understand it so what was Jesus talking about well, in the world in which Jesus lived, the salt that they had, they had two types. Certainly one was a pure type, but there was another one, and a very common one, which was the impure. Around the Dead Sea, where they got their salt from, 
there was also another white sandy substance that was the same size and it was the same colour as salt. And the pure salt was mixed with this other white sandy substance and it just formed a supply. And so people would come down and you know, grab a bucket full or whatever and they would take it home and they would store it at home and use it either for putting on their food or for fertiliser or for all the other purposes they had salt for. But if it was stored and if it was left outside and it rained, then the sodium chloride, the actual salt itself, was more soluble than the other white sandy substance and it would be washed away. And what was left was this white sandy substance that looked like salt. But they still called salt, but it didn't taste like salt and it didn't act like salt. It was something else. It had lost its saltiness. What did they do with it? They threw it around the front of the house on their footpaths. They put it on their roads where people would quite literally walk upon it. This is part of the life of which Jesus, when he was here, that's how they lived and that's what he's referring to. So too we... Our saltiness is our Christian character, our, us behaving like it says in the Beatitudes, both in word and in deed, being Christ-like, following him. We can lose that, our character, our Christ-likeness, by compromise, by absorbing sinful or bad habits like the world, that we imitate them and we lose our difference from them by being a follower of the Lord Jesus. When I became a Christian... I used to be a cranky young man and I used to swear like a trooper. That was the world in which I grew up in. It was a non-Christian home and I used to play football and it just seemed to go with the territory. Though I was taught by my parents and maybe by others, schooled and so on, that you'd never swear in the presence of a woman. And so what was remarkable, that here are these sinful habits that I have that I could control but that I would have excused of saying, ah, oh, it's not, I can't control it. But whenever a woman was around, suddenly I could, you could change. When I became a Christian, suddenly all that changed for me, almost instantly. I started speaking and I no longer had a desire to swear and it didn't come to me automatically or fluently. It just went. Um, and the same with my temper, my anger. It certainly reduced, it's still reducing, um, and occasionally I get a flare-up don't we all my life changed when i met jesus and that's what he's referring to that when we become followers of his our life will change we will be salty we will have a good impact on those around us but we can lose our influence by compromising our behaviors we lose our differences you know as i said to the earlier congregation when i became a christian back in the 70s um, i was probably at the end of an era where in the year beforehand it was very common, particularly for Baptists, but just for Christians, that they were known by their don'ts. Christians don't smoke. Christians don't drink. Christians don't dance, don't go to movies, don't play football, don't play on Sundays, don't play cards. Don't, 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 don't. They were known by their don'ts. Whereas that's not the difference that we're talking about here. The differences between us and the world is not that we have a list of rules and regulations where we don't do certain things. It's because we are shaped by and we have different attitudes. Now, as I said in the earlier congregation, I don't smoke. But I don't smoke because I'm a Christian. I don't smoke because my mum and dad smoked. 
and I grew up with them smoking and I saw what it did to them. And both my sister and I said, we won't do that. So I don't smoke not because I'm a follower of Jesus, I don't smoke because I hate smoking. Can a Christian smoke? Yes. Should a Christian smoke? No. Can you? Yeah, it's between you and God. Like I said to the 830 service, you'll smell like you belong in hell, but you at least, you don't because you follow Jesus. Can Christians dance? Some can, some can't. But it's not a, it's not a law, you're not sinning by dancing. Um, and, and so on. Can you go to the cinema? Of course you can, it's not a sin to go to the cinema. But for goodness sake, be careful what you go to see. Salt and light. And now for some of you, you, you've lived in a world and you've been grown up on, you've become conditioned by a level of violence or a level of sexuality or nudity or, or a level of um, language in movies where you've been desensitised to it. Is that wrong? Well, that's between you and God to figure out. You just be careful um, so that you do not compromise your saltiness, your Christian character and therefore your influence and witness in the world. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying. This influence of saltiness certainly happens at various levels. It should happen at home, absolutely. It should happen at work, school, uni. It should happen, it even happens on the national level. The biggest illustration historically that I could think of to come about that is the country of France. Back in the 1700s, France along with England was just a, a morally corrupt, a, a nation which was just filled with debauchery and immorality and a whole lot of corruption going on. And even the king of France said, after me, the deluge. After me, the flood. You know, it's, we're going to be wiped out, so let's party on. That was his attitude, and he was right. After he died, there was the French Revolution. There was a whole the groundswell of people rising up and throwing them out and lots of devastation and killing and so on. England, 20 miles away, just as bad, never experienced the revolution. How come? Because in 1703, there was a man born by the name of John Wesley. And John Wesley gets converted. And uh, through his conversion and through his preaching, many people, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in England come to faith. There was a revival in the country. And it was that revival of people turning to follow Jesus that, cha that saved the nation from rebellion, from anarchy, from revolution. That's historians will document that for you quite clearly. Changes, rapid changes in society. Christians being salt. God changing us and God's wanting you, he's calling you to be salt. Remember the city of Sodom? If there are ten righteous people found in it, then it wouldn't be destroyed. The influence, you see, of ten in a city. And sadly, there weren't even ten found, so the city was destroyed. For us to be effective, then, we must be in touch with the world. Salt has to be in touch. The salt has to be in touch with the meat in order to stop the corruption happening. So we've got to be in touch with the world. Not withdrawn from the world, not isolated from the world. Rather, Jesus sent us into the world like sheep amongst wolves. We are not to cloister on our little salt shakers where it's Christian just with Christians. We are to be shaken out into the world and the community and we're to be intentional in our relationships with our friends, with our neighbours, with everybody that we come in contact with of being a witness, a demonstrable witness of the Lord Jesus. But we must maintain our distinctiveness, our Christ-likeness, our character 
and not compromise. Otherwise, we become part of the problem and not part of the solution. So my question to you before I move on is, how's it going for you? Jesus called you, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, he called you to be salt in your world. Are you living as a Christ follower? Are you using your money as a Christ follower? Do you talk as a Christ follower, as a believer? Not just in the words you use, you know, swearing or telling inappropriate stories, but even engaging in gossip or passing on rumours or lies or deception. And as a follower of the Lord Jesus, we're to put those things off. We're to be different. That's how the world behaves. Um, Am I conducting myself as a beatitude Christian in my family, in my leisure time, at work? Is there anything that I've got to fix up in my life so I can be more effective as salt? Is there something I have to add? Is there something I have to remove? Is there something that has to change? Why don't you ask the Lord about that and listen to his answer to see what he says to you? Because certainly the evil one will be tempting us and trying to trick us to be ineffective to lose our saltiness let me go on the lord jesus then uses the second metaphor about light and jesus here himself clarifies what he means by the light you are the light of the world and he says let your light shine verse 16 before people that they may see your good works and praise your father in heaven so you are the light of the world he's talking about the way that we behave our conduct these are good works and that certainly includes our speech. They are good works of faith, but they're also good works of love and care. These good works express our loyalty to God. We attend church, we read our Bible, we talk to him in prayer, we give to his cause, we serve him in some ministry area, works of faith. But they're also works of caring for others, practical, visible deeds of kindness, of care, of consideration of others. And people seeing that because they know that we are followers of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, when, you, when people see you doing these things, they will give honour to your Father in heaven. Which implies, of course, they know about your relationship with our Father in heaven. So at some point, you've either had a chat with them or you've testified to them. Anyway, they know the relationship between you, God, and these good deeds that they are observing. And it'll give them a hunger to chase after God. Um, Robert Louis Dabney, who was a theologian back in the 1800s, he tells this story of a worldly-minded um, attorney who, in the 19th century, um, was not in favour of Christianity. In fact, he used to mock it and he used to live a pretty bad life, a pretty immoral life. Anyway, he was ageing and he had retired, he'd finished his career and he never had any time for God or Jesus, or religion for that matter. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me, in his ageing and his declining health, he had to move and he went to live with his sister. Now his sister was a Christian. And his sister also had a son, so his nephew was a pastor, a minister, who was single and was living at home with his mum. So this attorney, who was hard-hearted and opposed to the gospel, comes to live in this home environment. And the son, the pastor, thinks this is a great opportunity and he has lots of gospel conversations with him, um, answering questions and probing and so on and lends him books to read and so on. And over a period of time and with his declining health and him knowing that the end is drawing near, he confesses faith in Christ and he wants to do so publicly. And he says that to the pastor, Can I, would it be okay if I did this publicly? And of course, 
But the pastor wanted to know, the son wanted to know, what caused the change in, your, in the heart? What changed you from being hard-hearted and opposed to Christ to being someone open and responsive to him? And he was really probing, you know, was it the conversation that I had had with you? It's answering your questions, is that what was helpful for you? Was it any of the literature I gave you? To which, as Dabney tells the story, he says, um, no, it wasn't the words of the pastor that did it, but it was the godly life of the sister, the pastor's mum. This guy saw her godliness and her radiance as a Christian in every situation and it caused him to seek God to have that same sort of relationship. It's remarkable, isn't it? Dabney concludes by writing, The light of a holy example is the gospel's main argument. The light of a holy example is the gospel's, he says, main argument. And I very rarely can think about and talk about evangelism and this influence of the life without going to 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2 and 4. Now, in this context, it's talking about a husband and wife, and the wife is a Christian and the husband isn't. But listen to what Peter says to her, the Christian, of how to behave in this relationship. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husband, so that if any of them do not believe the word... They may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Salt, light, our lives, our behaviour, our conduct, reflecting the reality of Christ in us, him changing us. Peter goes on to say, your beauty shouldn't be outward, you know, clothes and hair and jewellery and so on. Verse 4, instead, it should be the inner beauty, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Gentleness, calmness, peace, beatitudes. Being that sort of a person in your relationships. And even though people have a different philosophy and rise up and are aggressive and fighting and will say, hateful and untruths about you, Jesus says, respond as salt and light. Was it Francis of Assisi? I always forget who said this, but I like it. He says, we have to be witnesses every day about our relationship with Jesus. We have to be witnesses every day and if necessary, use words. And you think about it, I like that. Because it's saying every day I have to live as a Christ follower I don't always have to say something, but I should always be living that way in all of my relationships. It's a tall order, isn't it? That old little poem, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. It's true. Men see what you write, whether faithful and true. So what is the gospel according to you? Kent Hughes tells the story of a man who went away to France on a trip and while he was there, he saw this little gift, a little size of a matchbox thing, and he wanted to buy it for his wife. And uh, so he brought it home and he gave it to her. And the gift idea was that this little box thing, substance, would in darkness be glowing. It would give off a light. So there would be a very soft, gentle light, like those solar panels you see in people's gardens. You know, during the day they absorb sunlight, if you like, and at night they've still got some light source. It's some, whatever the substance was, it was like that. He was moved by it and she was tickled pink when he gave it to her and so when she got the gift she went and she turned the lights off click 
and the room was in darkness and the thing wasn't glowing, wasn't shining. And he thought, well, it's broken or I've been ripped off. You know, they've sold me a dud. Um, later on, turn the lights back on, later on on the box they saw that there was some words written in French, which they didn't speak. And so the next day they found someone who could translate it and the inscription says this, if you want me to shine in the night, keep me in the light. <laughs> if you want me to shine in the night, keep me in the light. So he had to put it out in the light and it would be changed chemically and then it would be, have a light source that night. Well, I'm telling you that story, aren't I? So that, so too for us. If we're going to be the light in a dark place, then we need to be in the light. We need to be in his light. We need to delight in his word. We need to enjoy his presence through talking with him in prayer. And just like the Apostle Paul says, as we behold him with unveiled face, we will be trans transformed from one degree of glory to another to become more like him as we gaze upon him dwelling in his light. And as somebody has very rightly said, the light, shines the light that shines furthest will shine the brightest at home. Jesus says, you are the, the salt of the earth. There are some things that you need to have an influence for as a follower of the Lord Jesus, whether it's speaking up against or whether it's simply living a life which does not compromise, doesn't laugh at silly jokes, doesn't accept the putting down of women, doesn't stand by when the poor are being oppressed, but responds as a follower of the Lord Jesus. We're to be the light of the world and that we're not to conceal it. We're to let our light be visible, to shine unashamedly before others, not to be pushy, not to be rude, just to live consistently at home, in our neighbourhood, at work or at school, in the shops, when we're driving, when we're away, when we're alone, in our leisure activities, in our hobbies, in all dimensions of our life, following Jesus, being salt and light in all of our networking, distinct from the world around us. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once had a young person come to him, a follower of the Lord Jesus, just became converted. And the young guy was uh, a little bit concerned about, I've got a lot of non-Christian friends and they're really bad. Because I used to be bad as well, but now I follow Jesus. What should I do with my friends? Spurgeon said, don't do anything. Just be a follower of Jesus and keep being friends with them. And before very long, you won't have to get rid of them. They'll get rid of you. That's exactly what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 4. Your previous friends will come to you and say, hey, come with us and do this. We used to do this together and you'll say, no, well, I don't do that anymore. And before long, often, those friendships will either impact and change them or they will reject you. You don't need to reject them. You love them, you pray for them. But before long, they probably will reject you. The book of Revelation in chapter 11 talks about how in the future, one day, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That day is coming when the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. And until then, he has now left his church, us, his followers, to be salt and to be light, to stop the corruption which is going on in the world and to be a light shining in the dark place that people might come to know him. That's the call. Let's pray together.
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the simplicity and for the clarity of your teaching. It's certainly challenging. So, Lord, I pray that you might help us to be just obedient and pleasing to you, to be salt, to be salt in all of our relationships and activities, and to be a light, a light which shows the way, a light which shows you, in order that you might be honoured and that you might be glorified and that people might be saved. So, Lord, use us today and in the days of this week to be salt and light. And Lord, speak to us. If there's anything we need to change, if there's anything we need to add, if there's anything we need to remove, could you tell us, please, uh, that we might follow you more closely? We pray in your name. Amen.